Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we are sharing some of the recommended books from uh, Publisher Publishers Weekly Summer Reading List with you. We'll also hear from debut novelist Amy Myerson. And I have a special request that I'll be announcing a couple of times throughout the show. And I'm going to do that right now before I bring on our guest. And I'll do it a couple of more times. Uh, so hopefully we'll catch everyone today. But I'm working on a story about suicide. It's to raise awareness. And um, I really wanted to talk with people who are survivors of suicide. So people who attempted suicide and um, have come through it. Um, I'm going to give you an 800 number to call. If you know of anyone who might be interested in talking with me, maybe you yourself or a family member, a friend, um, please ask them to call me. Um, I guarantee this will be handled with uh, total discretion and sensitivity. Um, but I really wanted to try and get as many people to talk with as I can. So if you know somebody who'd like to talk to me about possibly sharing their story, you can reach me at 800-495-7617. And um, again, that's a voicemail. It's my pri- it goes to my private line, so nobody else will answer that but me. It's 800-495-7617. Or you could also email me at info at conversationslive.net. All right, so let me bring on our first guest today. She's anxiously waiting on the line here. And I know she's excited to be with us. We're excited to have her. Uh, she is Amy Myerson, and she's currently an assistant professor in the writing department of the University of Southern California. She's been published in numerous literary magazines and currently lives in L.A. Uh, her book, this debut book, is The Bookshop of Yesterdays. Uh, Amy Myerson, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, very pleased to have you here today. I know you're already an established writer, but it's very different when you have your first book published, right? Oh, definitely. And so... It's, it's more different than I thought. <laughs> well, that's what we want to talk about today because, you know, the big question I hear, I hear a lot of people, and I'm sure you're not in that category because you're already a working writer. You kind of know the truth of things. <laughs> but I hear a lot of people say, well, when I've written my book, that's it. I'm going to stay home and just, just write all the time. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the realities of writing today, um, as well as your book, The Bookshop of Yesterday. So let's begin um, with this book. Um, you've been a teacher for how long? I've been teaching for about 10 years. And you I started in, oh, sorry, I started in graduate school um, as an uh, assistant and then kind of kept uh, teaching after I finished. Right. And you're teaching in the writing program? Yes. Okay. So is that creative fiction, creative nonfiction? Uh, I actually teach argumentative writing and critical thinking, which I think is a really good complement for creative writing because, in my opinion, all writing kind of follows the same rules. You need to have a central argument, um, but it just allows me to think about other 
other ways in which writing is important and things that help to uh, inform my fiction writing. Yeah. So a lot of people like to write, but they don't make necessarily a full-time career of it. Why did you decide to make it your full-time career? Well, I've always wanted to write since I was little. I have memories as a kid, which I guess ages me, but of sitting on my parents' typewriter and coming up with stories, which I wish they still had. Um, <laughs> but this is something I've I've always wanted to do, and uh, I think that you know, it's, I I don't know if I would consider myself a full time writer because I also teach regularly, but I think teaching and writing. Uh, go hand in hand really well. Well, I so, think I think you. I, I was referring to your teaching career because you're teaching writing. So, oh sure, yeah, yeah. But um, yes, yeah. okay. So you've been doing this for ten years, and so what point did you think, okay, this is time for me to write my own book? Well, I think as most writers probably do, I started out with short stories, which is a great way to kind of learn the craft of writing. And it's, it's easy. I, find, I don't find the writing stories necessarily easier, but I find them easier in the sense that you can kind of see the whole story because the short story is usually somewhere between 10 and 30 pages. And that's really easy to keep in your head at the same time. So I think stories are a good way of starting to kind of learn the arc of having a beginning, middle, and end. And at some point, I started writing these short stories, particularly the one that became the bookshop of yesterday's that just started to get too long maybe 50 or 60 pages and I, I realized that I wanted to try long form and so at what point or how how did the the idea for the bookshop of yesterday's come to you it actually started with an article I read in the New York Times book review it was called you never know what you'll find in a book <laughs> or in the New and York Times a- book review right um, and it, it was all about the various things that people have found in used books that people have left both intentionally and unintentionally. So everything from a used Q-tip um, and a baby's tooth to one bookseller found $40,000 in a used book. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. I'd, I'd love to talk to the person that found that book. Um but I just was so charmed with the idea that you could learn a lot about somebody from what they left, usually using as bookmarks, in their books. Right. And, yeah, and so I, I, I ripped this article out of the New York Times, and I kept it in my journal for a couple of years, and I wasn't really sure why I was holding on to it, but eventually that uh, spawned into a character. I was thinking about, you know, who would leave things in books, and what if they left them intentionally for someone? And eventually that became the uncle character in the bookshop of yesterday's. Okay, so the uncle in the bookshop is is Billy. And yes. he comes into the story because, tell, let's talk about the story a little bit, about how Miranda gets involved in all of this. Sure. So uh, Miranda is the main character in the bookshop of yesterday's. She is, when the novel begins, she's working as a middle school history teacher in Philadelphia. And she grew up in Los Angeles. When she was little, her uncle was her favorite person in the world. He was a seismologist. They studied earthquakes. And he also owned a bookstore. And he would take her on these wild adventures and plan these elaborate scavenger hunts that taught her about how the world worked. But then when she was 12, 
he had a really horrible fight that she that Miranda witnessed uh, with Miranda's mother. And after that, they never really saw him again. So the novel picks up 12 years later um, when Billy has died, and he sends Miranda something in the mail that leads her to believe that he's left her one final scavenger hunt. And so with that scavenger hunt, he leaves her the deed to his bookstore, and which is in Los Angeles, and she returns to Los Angeles, and she starts to find clues hidden in the books on the shelves of his bookstore, which is called Prospero Books. Uh, Miranda, Prospero Books, there's a, a theme of the Tempest throughout the novel. And she starts to talk to people from her uncle and her mother's past that let her that allow her to understand what happened in the past and, and why there was this family estrangement. Right, right. So Billy was the first character that you uh, that, that came to you, and yet he is actually deceased, uh, even though he's, he's leaving these clues for Miranda throughout the book. At what point did Miranda become a necessary character and, and the protagonist for you? Pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I started to write a short story um, I guess about six years ago, that was from Billy's perspective. And it was kind of about planning the scavenger hunt. And I quickly realized that, it, for me, it seemed a lot more engaging if we weren't learning about the past directly from him, but uh, in his absence. And uh, so then I started to think about who would he leave it to, and that's sort of where Miranda came about. Right, right. And, of course, throughout the book, she's torn because she has a, a lover in New York, but then there's temptation when she comes back to California, and she's kind of torn between these two lives. So that kind of adds to the um, the tension, if you will. Yeah, it was really important to me that she wasn't, although she has some conflicted feelings about teaching, which I did want to put in the book because I think um, teaching is, a wonderful, rewarding, but often somewhat challenging job. Uh, I didn't want her to be conflicted when she leaves about Philadelphia because um, I thought that that would sort of be the, it, it, it would make her choice to stay or not stay in Los Angeles easier if she wasn't happy. So I wanted her to have a rich life so it wasn't like she was wishing to escape. Right, right. And it makes for a more interesting character too than somebody who's just looking for an out, right? Right. Yeah. So um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I have some questions for you around, um, I know you did a lot of research on what it takes to to keep a bookstore going in today's (laughs) digital world. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that and a little bit about your journey to becoming a debut novelist because, as you said in the beginning of the hour, it's quite different to what you expected. So we'll talk about that. And my guest is Amy Myerson. Her new book is called The Bookshop of Yesterdays. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800 800- Four five seven six six seven six. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. 
At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Knowing your press can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Follow me on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Going our own way every day. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, my guest in this segment is Amy Myerson. Her new book is The Bookshop of Yesterdays. And uh, Amy is an assistant professor in the writing department of the University of Southern California. And um, this is her debut novel. So um, you're in Colorado. You're joining us from Colorado right now, right, Amy? Yes, I uh, just had a reading in Denver, and now I'm in the mountains. Well, well that's cool that you're getting to go, you know, travel about on your debut novel here, because a lot of people don't get that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I think publishers are sending out people less than, than they used to, um, so I feel very fortunate. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to you and um, how it's been different because you are an established writer. You've already had several things published in literary magazines, etc., literary journals. Um, but going from that to being, I mean, I, I know journalists who've been in the business for 30 years and, you know, they've written prolifically all of their lives and then they have a whole different experience when they do a book. So what's that been like for you Um Talk to us a little bit about what you're expecting and, and how it's how it's different. Well, to start, the process takes a lot longer than I had thought it would. Um, I guess I didn't really have a sense of how long it would take. But, the you know, you finish after, uh, after you have sold your novel, you go through a few rounds of edits with your publisher, and the novel is pretty much other than a proofread, 100% done about nine months before it comes out. Sometimes it's even longer than that. So there's this whole period where, which can be very nerve-wracking, where you can't really change anything and you're just kind of waiting for it to come out. So that was, that was the first thing that, was, that I hadn't really anticipated. But then uh, since it's come out, I, I think I was so nervous about it for so long that I've been pleasantly surprised by how fun it is. Uh, I've gotten to go to a lot of bookstores already and booksellers are just warm, friendly people um, and readers read because they love to read. So overall, it's been a really welcoming and uh, supportive experience. 
um, which I wish I'd just allowed myself to be excited for. <laughs> there we go. Hindsight. Next next time, right? <laughs> next time right. you can just sit back and relax. <laughs> so you said that, um, you know, you have this lag period, obviously, when you're publishing a book, when you've handed off, you've handed off your final edits, your proofs are done, etc. And you're just waiting for it to come out uh, to the world. During that period, um, you, you talked a little bit about how that's a nervous kind of time for you. Did you have thoughts about, oh, I wish I could change this or I wish I could change that? W- was any of that going on with you? Uh, a little bit, mostly at the sentence level, because I guess another thing that, that surprised me about publishing is is that uh, editors think tend to think more big picture. So when you're exchanging your writing with other writers, there's a lot more focus on the prose and the sentence level. Uh, so, and um, I learned so much about storytelling through working with my editors. But I think after I was finished, I I felt pretty confident about the narrative because we'd been working on that a lot. But I think, like probably every writer, I still wanted to uh, tinker with the sentences, and you know, I I eventually just kind of stopped reading it because every time I read it I was like oh I wish I could change that sentence I, I think that's uh, that goes with the territory, doesn't it? Unfortunately, I know I've looked at stuff yeah. that I've written like years ago and think, oh, I should have written that. Oh, I should have written this. <laughs> and it's like, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's done and dusted right. now. Um, yes, I always tell my students that a piece of writing is finished because you have to hand it in or it's in public. It's being published. Yeah. It's Otherwise, the, you'd never finish anything. It's the same, I think, with any creative form. It's, you know, I have photographers, uh, friends who say the same thing, artists, friends who say the same thing. There comes a point where you just have to say, it's done. I'm not touching it anymore. <laughs> but um, getting to that point can be angst-ridden. So as you were developing the story, I mean, it can uh, be full of highs and lows. You can you know, push through really smoothly and then have bits maybe where you were blocked or you backtrack. Um, did you have a point in the book where you were, you felt like giving up at any point? No, I definitely had points where I needed to, to step away because I do think one of the problems with that instinct of constantly wanting to rework things is there's a point at which there's, you know, diminishing returns and you can actually do more harm than good. Uh, so there were there were a few. I think with with every piece of writing, there's there's a few things that uh, present themselves early on as being the most problematic part. So you end up having to to struggle through those. So there are definitely times where I had to take breaks, but uh, I, I guess I'm pretty stubborn and disciplined. So I always knew that I was going to finish. Right, right. And that I wanted to finish. Right. And so, did you have do you have a favorite character in the book? I think my favorite character in the book is a writer named Sheila. She's sort of a composite of a lot of influences I've had as a young writer. And I just, I like her uh, courage and I like her confidence. And I like the relationship that she has with the main character where she's not a maternal person, but she ends up, when Miranda ends up fighting a little bit with her mom and, and not talking to her for a while in the book, Sheila kind of takes the place of her mother. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think she's my favorite. Right. Now, what have you learned from this writing this novel that you're going to carry through to your next novel? 
because each time we hope we're going to get better and stronger with each book. Yes. Well, I think I've, I've learned things both about storytelling and then also I think the biggest lesson I've learned is to not be precious. So in terms of, I guess I'll start with that one. Uh, I think it's really important to be open to feedback and to realizing that other people can see things in your writing that you can't necessarily see. So with this novel, I was really, really open, and I'm really glad that I was uh, to my editor's feedback and my agent's feedback because it became a lot stronger of a novel in response. So I think in the future, I will hold on to that, that this idea that it's writing a novel is a lot more of a collaborative experience than probably most readers know. Mm. Um, and then also uh, from a storytelling perspective, if, I think, uh, sort of as I was saying before, I think a lot of times as writers, we, we tend to focus first on the writing and second on the story. And in hearing from readers and what, what they like about my novel, I've, I've learned that you know, what a lot of re- readers mostly read for characters in a good story. So I think I've learned a lot about how, hopefully, to tell a good story, certainly how to tell a better story. And that's something that I'm already bringing into a new piece that I'm working on. Right. And I'm wondering how that's changed your approach when you're teaching writing, because um, as you grow as a writer, that's going to influence your teaching, too. Yeah, it influences my teaching a lot. I think I, you know, I noticed this past school year was the first year that I entered the classroom as a soon-to-be-published author. And and I just had, I think, more confidence in, and my student, not in necessarily, I've always had confidence as a teacher because I think writing is really important, and I think that I've learned a lot about writing, both from writing and teaching. But it just entering the, the room with that uh, helps the students immediately engage. But the way that I bring my writing uh, most prominently into the classroom is, is being really honest with my students about how much revision is involved in the writing process. And so, you know, their, their eyes kind of bolt out of their head when I tell them how many drafts <laughs> of my novel I wrote. Uh, but I think, you know, writing is hard work for everyone. And I think that people, especially students who don't particularly love writing, they assume that it's just easy for other people and that the reason they don't like it is because it's hard for them. Mm. So I bring a lot of my own stories into the classroom, and I think that's helpful. Yes, definitely. I was having dinner with uh, a friend who's an, a new author, too, and she uh, said that somebody she knows in her writing group uh, says they never do any rewriting, and I'm like, I just was speechless. I said, that person either is not telling you the truth or she's got a short-term memory, or, or maybe she just is self-publishing and shoving it out the door as is, but rewriting is really where it's all at. <laughs> yeah. I think there's stories that maybe, I remember I tell my students this, I hope it's true, that John Updike used to like edit as he wrote, so he would just type out a story, and that would pretty much be his, at least his final draft of it. So I think some people don't realize that, I mean, there are. I think it's good to have a draft and then revise, but some people revise as they go along. Maybe that's what she does and doesn't call it revision. Well, that's that's what I think probably happened. That she's not seeing it as revision or rewrites. Um, Danny Shapiro, uh, she's been on the show and she's had several books out. A very, very good writer. And she is one person. She said she can't go on to the second sentence until the first sentence is perfect. So she edits as she goes along. Um, 
But then when you go to a publisher, they're inevitably going to throw something back at you and say, hey, let's change this up a little, smooth this out, work on this transition, whatever, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think I agree with her. I can't get started until I have a first sentence in my head, but I think I had, by the time the bookshop of yesterday's was published, I had at least seven first sentences, probably more than that over, over draft. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the editors and publishers are professionals, and they know what readers want, and they know what sells, and so they have really good advice that certainly as a first-time author uh, were aspects of storytelling that I hadn't thought of. So as a first-time author, you know, people expect life is going to change. Life is going to change. How has your life changed? Well, it's in the most basic way, it's changed that my, one of my lifelong dreams has come true. And, and that, 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 itself, that in itself is amazing. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It is amazing, and I'm trying to. I'm getting more comfortable with 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 saying that. With is, that, it's it's you know, I'm, I am <laughs> really proud of myself and really excited. And so, I think the ways that it's changed my life is that I've become part of a larger literary community. I've I've been to some conferences, and I've uh, been to a bunch of bookstores, and I've just gotten to meet a lot of other writers. And so in that way, I think my life has changed that, that I'm really part of a literary community. But at the same time, you know, I, I still have my teaching job. And I think that it's, I don't know, really know any writers who can live entirely off of their writing lives. Most people have another job. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's good for writing to have other outlets. I, I would agree with you on that. I think you need stimulus, you know, and I, um, I, I'll be really honest, I struggled myself last year because I was working on a project that isolated me so much. I was going stir crazy. And yeah. um, I think we need that outside stimulus. And, and I made sure I got it kind of after hours. But um, even during work hours, it would have been nice to have had some stimulus uh, from other people and, you know, collaborate collaborators, etc. Um, I think too much isolation can be um, as harmful as not enough, really, to a writer. I agree. So what do you hope people will take away from your book, Amy? Well, first and foremost, I mean, it is a story about a family, but first and foremost, at least for me, it's a story about books and about a love of literature and reading. So I hope that, you know, there's tons of literary references in it, and they're all books that I love and think for a variety of reasons are important. So at the most immediate sense, I just hope that people enjoy and feel a sense of nostalgia when they um, see the names or see references to books that they love. Mm. And you mentioned that there's a reference throughout uh, for The Tempest. Um, you referenced The Tempest throughout the book. So in fact, I think Billy's last clue comes from the the Tempest. Um, why the Tempest? What was it about that that made you want to include? Yeah, so the the both the first and the last clue are, are from the Tempest, and they're different parts of the play. The Tempest has always been my favorite Shakespeare, and I didn't the uh, the name of the bookstore in the novel is Prospero Books, which works so well because. Prospero 
gets his powers from his magic books. And when I first started writing, I, I, I started kind of backwards. So I had the idea, and then I worked backwards to figure out all the novels I wanted to include in it. So The Tempest didn't come to me right away, but I knew that the story in the novel was going to be about an estrangement. And I don't, I, you know, I think when, when people think of The Tempest, they think of it, it's about a lot of things. And I think often we think about it as a play about freedom. Um, that's usually where, like with, with Caliban and stuff, where, where people mostly think of The Tempest. But it's also about uh, a, a bitter fight between siblings. And what I think works really well with my novel, with The Tempest, is that The Tempest, at the beginning, it seems like it's a play about uh, revenge and that Prospero is, is vengeful and trying to get back at his brother. But by the end of the play, it's really about forgiveness. And I, I liked that transition, and that was something I tried to embody in my own novel. Well, Amy Myerson, thank you for being with us today. Exciting times in your debut novel, and it is called The Bookshop of Yesterdays. I wish you all the best with it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about Amy at uh, amymyerson.com, and Myerson is M-E-Y-E-R-S-O-N, amymyerson.com. And please stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals at Paws a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws foster care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. 
Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to brighten your day. Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we're going to have uh, some fun in the next half hour because Eric is here with us every week, keeping us live on air. And occasionally we let him out of his little cage, right, Eric? <laughs> it's, nice, Good afternoon. it's nice to have you on this show. I'm just being funny there. It's nice to actually hear his voice and have him spend some time with us. So he's going to do that um, in the next 30 minutes. We're going to look at some, or 20 minutes, but we're going to look at some books um, that uh, are recommended summer reading. And so um, before I do that, I just want to put another call out. I have a request for uh, people. I'm looking, I'm working on a story to raise awareness around suicide. It's quite a big story and there are several components to it. But what I really want to do is talk with some people who've attempted suicide and have struggled with depression and, um, and suicidal thoughts. This is, this is the key thing, suicidal thoughts and uh, attempted suicide. And um, I want to be able to talk to them privately and, and, and hear their story. So if you know somebody who might be interested in talking with me, um, I'm going to give you an 800 number. It goes to my personal phone. Nobody else will hear this but me. And um, they can leave a, a name, telephone number, and just let me know uh, they're talking, they're calling about this segment here. So um, my 800 number is 495-7617, 800- 495-7617 or they can call uh, or they can email info at conversationslive.net all right okay well, i'll try and do that one more time before the end of the show hopefully um we'll get most people to hear it because i know people come and go during the hour all right so eric and i are going to go through some of i picked out uh, i grabbed publishers weekly because they uh, have a great list of summer reads, and some mm. of these are kind of different. I'm sure you've looked through you've looked through your list, and I yeah. know they're kind of different, aren't they? So, I I, I think a lot of uh, authors are trying to tap into the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world at the moment, which is interesting because a lot of times people try and write books. It seems like that are maybe uh, not necessarily connected to the modern world. Uh, news cycle, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think... Or maybe that that's just a coincidence. It, it's partly Because it takes a long time to write a book, doesn't it? It does take a long yeah. time, uh, you know, but it also, and it takes the publishing process we just heard from yeah, Amy. Yeah, so what, maybe you know, things are least just year, usually. syncing up with, with the things that have been building in our consciousness for, yeah. for years. I think um, creatives, whether photographers, artists, musicians, writers, you know, have... I tapped into what's going on and mm. the stories start evolving around that, whatever their medium is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, let's let's try and get through these. And this one actually 
you know, there have been a lot of um, referrals to Nazism, Nazi Germany lately. And I, I pulled this book out, not because of that, but because it's about Asperger's children. Hmm. And I, ne I never knew this story. I, I did watch a lot of um, war footage. My, my dad actually made me do that when I was a kid. To know, so I knew what my grandfathers fought for. And I hated it when I was a child <laughs> because it was so sad and yeah. so depressing. But this book, um, you know, maybe it's not a beach read necessarily, but um, it sounds really interesting. And it's called Asperger's Children, the Origins of Autism in Nazi Vienna. Hmm. And it's written by historian Edith Schaeffer, who wrote uh, Burned Bridges, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. And she looks at the legacy of Austrian psychiatrist Hans Asperger, after whom Asperger's syndrome sure. is, is named. And he worked with autistic children during the 30s and 40s, 1930s and 40s. And um, it was really shocking because he offered support to some autistic children and he offered death to others. Um, in 1937, Asperger advocated a somewhat like a non-judgmental approach toward children's differences. Um, you know, he's just kind of explaining them as being different. A year later, following the Nazi annexation of Austria, he publicly recommended the overhaul of medicine according to guiding principles of national socialism. And the long and short of that meant that... Um, they were determining which people determine which people deserve to live and which people deserve mm. to die. And um, they were sent, some of the kids were sent to um, a camp, or say a camp, an institution in Vienna where at least 789 of those children died. And um, they were punished daily. They had inhumane neglect. And as a treatment, euthanasia, was considered a treatment. So it's quite shocking. And as I said, not a beach read, I don't think. Not for me, certainly. But I think a lot of people might find that interesting um, to see how how Asperger's syndrome, yeah. uh, you know, the, the approach around that. But it's really about the biography of the, the practitioner, Asperger. And, and he did, after the war, was cleared of any war crimes, and he went on to continue practicing child psychiatry, rightly or wrongly, I don't know. So that's hmm. called Asperger's Children, The Origins of Autism in Nazi Vienna. And that's a really, it is a heavy book. We started with that one to get it out the way. So yeah. you've it got... It does sound fascinating, though. Yes. Anybody think, interested in history. Yes. I think would and I know we have a lot of people interested in history because they've asked me to include more history books. So yeah. All right, so you have a, uh, a a different one. You have a maybe a more fun one. Yeah, another <laughs> depending on your outlook on this. <laughs> another Publishers Weekly uh, staff pick uh, for nonfiction is the new book by Michael Pollan, who said, "Well, maybe there was something missing in my life because normally Michael Pollan writes about food. He's well known for." Uh, being the award-winning author of uh, books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, In Defense of Food, and also Cooked. And now he's written a book called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, and Depression. And uh, this is uh, about his 
psychedelic renaissance, if you will. It's a, it's about taking microdoses of LSD uh, as treatment for you know, mental uh, issues, yeah. um, and and talking about the research that's gone into that, uh, and it, it does sound pretty fascinating. He's uh, you know he's taken a journalistic approach to something that's often been dismissed as you know something that the Grateful Dead would be into, you know. <laughs> right. And, but right. he's talking about the scientific yeah. uh, research that's been done uh, on LSD, which sounds really interesting. Well, in the 60s, a lot of psychiatrists did uh, did issue LSD as part of people's treatment. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of controversy around that, of course. And um, I happened to have caught Michael Pollan on a couple of interviews. And so I listened to him talk about this book. And he he did firsthand research on this. He actually took the drugs, um, all kinds of different drugs, and his wife did too. Mm -hmm. And um, it said it changed his opinion on Mm. whether this was right or whether this was wrong. I'm not going to tell you what or what because he, he himself wanted people to make up their own mind. But he went into great detail about um, testing those things out firsthand. (laughs) And in fact, one of the best experiences of his life, he claims, he had while he was researching. (laughs) Interesting. And these were all uh, like supervised uh, demonstrations uh, that it wasn't like, again, like dropping acid at a, at a concert or whatever. Then And then he wrote, yeah, that was a great show or anything like that. <laughs> this is this is really like talk, taking a scientific approach to it. You couldn't get maybe more of a straight laced uh, guy than Michael Pollan, I think. So it's fascinating when those two worlds meet. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, he he said himself, it changed his opinion. So uh, interesting and give us the name of that book again if somebody's interested in that. Yeah, uh, it's called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us. Okay, Michael Pollan. Um, okay, so another staff pick from Publishers Weekly. Uh, this is a thriller, and the reviewer on this said, hey, if you are um, camping in the woods or you're staying in a cabin while you're reading this, make sure every single light is on. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I, I don't think I have to say too much about that. It's called The Cabin at the End of the World, and it's about an apocalypse. Uh, it begins with a home invasion in, in a what they describe as a tripwire-taught horror thriller. And they're, a couple are on vacation with their seven-year-old daughter and uh, in New, New Hampshire, which it lends itself to all kinds of, you know, horror imaginations there. And... Um, the cabin is invaded by a quartet of weapons-wielding strangers, etc., um, etc. Et but um, it was highly recommended. Paul Tremblay is the author. The book again, The Cabin at the End of the World. Wow. So. Well, I got a maybe what would be a good companion if you're not scared out of your mind <laughs> after reading that. <laughs> if that doesn't scare you away from the wilderness, you might be interested in Bearskin. Uh, the debut novel from James A. McLaughlin. And uh, his uh, new book is set in the Appalachian wilderness of Virginia. And it's about a biologist uh, that discovers that poachers are killing bears to sell their organs on overseas drug markets. And he's trying to curtail (laughs) this activity, but finds out that it's antagonizing the locals 
and it also uh, ends up uh, affecting the Mexican Sinaloa drug cartel. Uh, and then the story is builds towards a violent confrontation with the poachers, the cartel, and nature itself. So uh, a thriller uh, set in the wilderness. And uh, so I, I think you might have a good combination there, <laughs> you know, maybe on the more on the horse side with the book <laughs> you talked about, and then the uh, heart racing uh, bearskin. And the name of the author again on that? It's James A. McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Yeah, it's all. We've got a few debut novelists here because it's always good to find a new author. Because when I find an author, I like to zip through and read everything they've written, and then you're like, okay, I don't have a new author. So. And this sounds like a good book, but I'm also looking forward to the the movie that no doubt will be made out of this because it it sounds really it does exciting. It, it sounds like it would lend itself very well to that. We need to, we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're going to look at some more uh, staff picks and some uh, kids' books, too. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Ann Gordon de Baragon and DolphinEnergyHealing.com, we cover the world of animals. This week, July 8th, it's a best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Dr. Nels can help with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems, and he can test for allergies, drug, or supplement compatibility and dosages for you or your animal friends. Plan to give us a call for your free remote session on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Find out about upcoming shows at conversationslive.net. Make it a great day. Keep your dial on Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And that's, was that Steve Merritt, right? That's his name who was just singing? Yeah, Stephen Merritt, uh, the, the band The Magnetic Fields. And, of course, Stephen Merritt was on the show talking about uh, a book that he wrote. He was, and I love I love that uh, piece of music. So thanks for sharing the that book with us. The Book of Love. The Book of Love. All right, we're going to talk some more about uh, some of the recommended reading from Publishers Weekly reading list, summer reading 2018 list. Um, so very quickly, I have a book of essays here. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's nice just to pick up a book and read a two, three, four pages, whatever. And um, 
and the, the story's, you know, been and done. So um, Maeve, oh, <laughs> Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. Maeve Higgins is the author. And um, she's obviously from Ireland. And she's a comedian. And uh, she's written a book of essays, which really funny. She covers all kinds of subjects from Rent the Runway, a designer clothes rental service, to Muslim travel ban. And um, she also talks about when she was teaching a comedy workshop in Iraq. So, I mean, all kinds of topical uh, things there, but all done with humor and humility. Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. Maeve Higgins, the author. Very cool. Uh, another interesting book uh, here is a new biography slash memoir from Event Guard director uh, David Lynch uh, with uh, Christine McKenna helping him out on this. This is called Room to Dream and the director of The Elephant Man and Blue Velvet, uh, Velvet and co-creator of Twin Peaks remembers a life as surreal as his movies in this exuberant biography slash memoir. You wouldn't want anything different from David Lynch, I we suppose. We would not yeah. expect anything <laughs> less from David Lynch. That's I right. Mean, it's got to be slightly askew, got to be slightly <laughs> weird if it's a David Lynch joint. <laughs> I know. I've watched much of his stuff, and I'm like, is this good or is it bad? I'm not quite <laughs> sure if I like it or not. But um, interesting, because one chapter is written by him as memoir, and then the next... Right. The alternating chapter is written by the journalist as biography. And she spoke with, you know, exes, friends, actors, foes, yeah. whatever. Um, so that should be kind of interesting for anyone interested in David Lynch and his career. Yeah, I'm always like you when I see his work. I go, this is really interesting. I'm not sure that I like it, but at the same time, I'm not bored by it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I find that uh, if you're a David Lynch fan, though, you're no doubt going to love this book. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, so let's move. Let's look at a couple of um, younger books. So we've got young young adult here, and I noticed on the list um, that it's it's really interesting. Going back to what you said at the the beginning, how the the work is representing kind of what's going on in our times right now. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the books is called How I Resist: Activism and Hope for a New Generation. Um, edited by Maureen Johnson, and that's a um, there's 30 essays in there by different contributors, um, you know, reflections, illustrations, poems from a, a really wide range of perspectives. So um, again, how I resist activism and hope for a new generation, and that's recommended for young adult reading. And um, I also have a middle grade book that I pulled out just because I loved reading about animals when I was a kid. And this is recommended for eight to 12 year olds. And uh, it's written by a Newbery Award nominee, um, Catherine Applegate. The book is called Endling the Last. And it's the first installment of her, the one and only Ivan. Uh, she wrote the one and only Ivan. It's the first installment of, of her new fantasy trilogy, um, and it's just full of animals, different kinds of animals, animals that we are not familiar with that she made up, basically. But they go on this adventure and journey, and uh, it's emotional, it's funny, and there's a lot of adventure and urgency around it. So um, it's called Endling the Last, Kathleen Applegate, the first of three books. In keeping with uh, the the stuff, uh, the the books that reflect our current time period, and also Irish author offers... Uh, we've got a young adult book uh, called Illegal by Owen Colfer, 
and Andrew Duncan, and illustrations by Giovanni Rigano. And uh, so it's already an international <laughs> effort there. Uh, but this is is a kind of a, a young uh, young adult book, and it's uh, about the refugee uh, crisis that's uh, happening uh, in Europe, of course. And uh, it, it looks fascinating. The, uh, the illustrations are already fantastic. I know we're short on time, so I'm yeah. going to leave it at that. But okay. this is recommended for ages 10 and up. Again, it's called Illegal. Okay. And the key thing about that is, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is that they reference artwork. The grandfather speaks his native Thai and no English. The little boy, his grandson, speaks English and no Thai, and they can't communicate. But they mm-hmm. communicate through artwork. So, Beautiful. Yeah, it's a great, great way, great one to end the show on. Yeah, that one's called Drawn Together, I think, is what uh, you're talking about. Uh, oh. And and that's that one is by oh, Min right. Lei. Right, yeah. that's Another. Drawn Together. That, yeah, I'm getting confused there. Thank, yeah, no. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I just wanted to make sure that yes. people looking for these books uh, can find them. Again, Drawn Together, uh, fantastic, as you just described. Uh, and well worth seeking out for younger readers out there. Yeah. All right. Well, we are at the end of the show. Thanks for being with us today. I'm going to put out one last very quick call. Um, If you know of somebody who um, has had suicidal thoughts throughout their lives, um, if you know of somebody who's attempted suicide, and maybe that's you, I am looking for people who are willing to share their story with me. It's uh, for a larger story. It's to raise awareness of suicide from the perspective, not of uh, not of medical practitioners, but of people who've actually been through this themselves, uh, because I think their story is very different to the other side of the table. You can reach me if you have questions uh, on the show or if you'd like to leave your name for me to call you back about the suicide awareness um, story I'm working on. You can reach me at 800 495 7617 7617. You can also email me at info at conversationslive.net. Thanks so much for being with us. We will see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425 269 4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425 269 4772.